Hello everybody, my name is Nick and welcome to this episode of the Blockchain Meditation Podcast. On this episode is joining me Ashley Sharp of MakerDAO. Me and Ashley will talk about stablecoins and what makers are up to these days. Enjoy the episode. Hello everybody, this is the Blockchain Meditation Podcast and it's my pleasure to welcome to the show Ashley Sharp of MakerDAO. Ashley, welcome. Hey, thanks so much, Nick. It's uh, nice to be here. Ashley, can you tell me a bit more about yourself? Uh, Ashley, I did my research, not talking here, but uh, you used to be part of the corporate world, working for one of the big financial institutions, and now you changed to the to the blockchain slash crypto world. What made you drive this change? Yeah, it was uh, it was kind of a circuitous path to get here. So I. Um, you know, I was a philosophy major in college, um, but, you know, I always had an interest in, in finance, uh, grew up in a, you know, entrepreneurial family. So, um, ended up going to work in finance after school, but while I was in school was when I actually discovered Bitcoin. So I had a, uh, had a pretty, pretty intense world of Warcraft year, around uh, 2012, 2013. And so early 2013, I learned from some people on, on WOW about, uh, about Bitcoin. So, you know, I bought some and kept up with it over the years. And um, after, you know, a brief stint in finance at JP Morgan, I really wasn't a fan of it. So I went to go work for a fintech startup um, which was helping connect buyers and sellers of companies and um, VC around VC and private equity deals. And I actually ended up from there um, going to work for one of my clients. So um, in the two years leading up to me joining Maker, I was, uh, I was an investor for a VC private equity style family office. So doing direct investing and um, yeah, on the, on the side, I was, you know, very focused on the crypto world and working with crypto-focused, other crypto-focused family offices, etc. And um, ultimately, through a contact of another family office, ended up coming into uh, coming in, getting in touch with Maker, and they asked me to come on and focus on business development. There aren't that many people that kind of understand finance and understand crypto and have business development type experience. So it seems like a perfect way to jump in two feet first and never looked back. It's been a really fun year. Nice. So you, you got the the blockchain, uh, sorry, the Bitcoin book early on, the Bitcoin fever. <laughs> yeah, it was, I mean, you know, like most people, I discovered it went down the rabbit hole for a long time. And then of course, you know, Mount Gox happened. It's pretty, it's pretty gutted about all my coins going missing. Not all of them, but decent, decent chunk. Um, so, you know, the next year or so, year and a half, I wasn't too involved, but kind of started to get back into it once, um, once Ethereum started to pick up some steam and, um, and got, you know, got much more interested in it at that point. How would you describe and could you describe stablecoins in two or three sentences? What's a stablecoin? Yeah, so stablecoins, you know, we they come in different shapes and sizes. You've got you know, what we call IOU coins, which are actually backed by dollars in a bank account, or you've got things like DAI, which are, you know, backed by a 
pool of different collateral assets. Um, so, you know, but the one thing that they all have in common is that they are a form of digital cash. So that means that they are stable in price so that you can actually spend them. Um, it means that they are fungible. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, we, we make her sort of feel like without stable coins, you know, Satoshi's original vision really can't be fulfilled. Nobody wants to spend their Ethereum or their Bitcoin if they're afraid it's going to go up 20%, you know, in the next week or whatever it is, sometimes in the next day. Um, people are very hesitant to do that. So it stands to reason that um, this ecosystem can't grow very much unless there is some kind of stable store of value, something that approximates dollars or euros or pounds or whatever it is that we're all used to using in our day-to-day -day lives. Um, so there's some very different schools of thought on how, you know, what those, what those tokens and what those technologies ought to look like. And we can talk more about that later, but, you know, I, th I guess simply put, they are digital cash. Um, actually Forbes called them, I quote, the holy grail of cryptocurrency. What do you think about it? I mean, I think it makes perfect sense, right? Um, the reason that, so MakerDAO is an open source tool which has allowed for the creation of DAI, which is a dollar-pegged stablecoin. The reason that um, MakerDAO was built is because the founders realized that essentially if you're going to have businesses built on top of uh, this blockchain, then the native currency needs to be something that people recognize. It needs to be something that people feel comfortable spending. If I'm a business that wants to build... Uh, a ticketing business or any kind of payments business on, on the blockchain and have that be adopted by the mainstream, that's not going to happen if there's no stable store of value or digital cash-like uh, token that people actually feel comfortable spending. So those businesses are going to fail and ultimately, you know, the blockchain is going to end up being uh, just, another, just another fad. So Maker feels very strongly that, you know, I don't know about the, the holy grail, but um, it more being as an, a necessary infrastructure layer in order for um, us to realize the full potential of blockchain technologies and all the businesses around that. Actually, you started tapping more about Maker and uh, what, uh, what was the original idea behind it. Could you go in more details about that and actually tell us more about DAI and what actually DAI is and how it works? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So Maker was, um, the, the project is actually the oldest project on Ethereum it was actually started before Ethereum on the BitShares platform. Um, and it was intended to be what you can think of as a, a smart contract version of a, of a bank, essentially, that issues fully collateralized loans um, in a stable currency called DAI. So what this platform allows you to do in its, in its current implementation is lock up some valuable tokenized asset. In the case of single collateral DAI, which is where we are now, that would be Ethereum. When multi-collateral is launched this year, you'll be able to have a multitude of different types of tokenized assets that you can borrow against. But what you're doing is you're essentially, sent, you're trustlessly collateralizing um, and borrowing. So you can think of what's happening as, let's say you send you know, $100 worth of Ethereum to uh, what you can think of as a digital safety deposit box, essentially. Um, we then use price oracles to assess uh, all on-chain what the actual value of what you've sent to that smart contract is. 
Um, and, and keep in mind, right, we're not maker of the company or the foundation isn't holding that for you. It's, it's sitting um, in a smart contract, right, where you can see it. These oracles say, okay, here's the value of what's in here. Each asset is assigned a collateralization ratio requirement and a what's called a stability fee, which is effectively an interest rate. Um, in the case of Ethereum, it's 150% collateralization ratio requirement. Um, and I think right now it's about a 1% interest rate. So what that means is I can borrow up to $66 worth of DAI against my $100 worth of Ethereum and pay 1% interest on that, which is really exciting. A couple of other implications. Um, one, because of the collateral over-collateralization, all DAI is backed by more than $1 worth of collateral, which is really important and helps to um, stabilize DAI. Um, in fact, we've seen the price of Ethereum go down 90% in the last year, and still the, pr the price of DAI has remained stable. That's because of this over-collateralization um, theory. Um, and then I guess, you know, another point to, to highlight is that all DAI is created at the time of borrowing. So it's not as though it's, it's not as though we have a, you know, a big store of DAI sitting in a smart contract somewhere that's already made, ready to give out to people that have hand in their collateral. All DAI is actually created by these smart contracts um, at the time of borrowing. And when the user is ready to retrieve their collateral, they have only to repay this DAI um, and, and receive their collateral back from the contract. Got it. So they say actually the optimal cryptocurrency should have the following four traits, which is price stability, scalability, privacy, and decentralization. And from what you actually outlined here, I understand that the price stability uh, comes from the from from the DAI, the scalability as well being minted on the spot, and we have the privacy and decentralization by default because of the blockchain and more particularly the Ethereum. So we could say that this is a one stepping stone to the more widespread adoption of uh, of everyday currency if i have if we can mm -hmm. say that yeah we're actually you know we're already seeing it we're seeing dai adoption and usage starting to pick up particularly in places like um venezuela or argentina um that have really unstable currencies in their local economies um you know a, a couple over the last several years you've seen a lot of headlines coming out of that part of the world saying that you know, people are investing in Bitcoin, and that was certainly true. Um, but I think increasingly you're also starting to see people invest in or just hold things like DAI and other stable coins as a way to protect against the inflation um, in the in the peso or in, in their own home country currency. That's pretty awesome, by the way. Um, because most of the times when we talk about blockchain cryptocurrency, we kind of detach it from the real world. This is just something from the techno techno people and people in other really that uh, tech savvy. <laughs> I know. And what you actually outlined here with Venezuela is a really good case. Can you go in more details about that and tell us more about the story? Yeah, sure. Actually, uh, people people getting too intense with the jargon and the lingo is one of my one of my pet peeves. I've been been yeah. trying to uh, get people to speak in plain language more often. I'm I'm guilty of it too. We we talk to each other about this stuff all the time, right? So it's easy to get caught up. We all are, I mm -hmm, think. Exactly. Um, but yeah, you know, with regard to Venezuela, we're also working on projects in Africa. The issues are there, right? Argentina had, for example, I think forty has had 47% inflation in the last year. That means if you are assigned a salary um, today and you work for an entire year, 
what you actually have in terms of value one year later is 50% less than, you know, what you agreed on. And so um, we're seeing some signs starting to pick up of people actually converting their, um, finding ways to convert their um, pesos to die, hold it, and, because it's also not strictly speaking, there are just some tricky issues around the government of Argentina doesn't want everybody to be holding dollars, right? Um, and so die is a good way for people to kind of avoid any issues around that, not to say anyone's breaking the law necessarily, but it is a, it is a, a good substitute, um, particularly because dollars can be you know difficult to get depending on what part of the country that you live in. Um, and so we're seeing people starting to save. And, um, and in fact, um, you know, financing, financing everything is huge in countries like this that have uh, massive inflation. There's really no point in paying um, cash value of something right now in pesos if the, if the, uh, if the value of those pesos is going to continue to go down. So, for example, if anyone in Argentina wants to buy a television or you know, something that you or I maybe would just go to Best Buy and pick up, um, it makes much more sense to finance it now because the price of the currency is going down over time. And, and so they're ultimately locking in a lower price on that item. Um, and as part of that, we have actually had a, there was a recent article, Mariano Conti, who works on our team, actually used MakerDAO's lending system to create his own financing tool for uh, for purchasing a car, which was pretty interesting. Instead of paying, you know, whatever the prevailing interest rate is there, he's paying half a percent on collateralized Ethereum or about 1%, I believe. Well, this actually leads naturally to my next question, which is about the blockchain adoption and, you know, the stable tokens and DIMES in particular being, you know, the path to mainstream adoption. But what do you think about such countries in distress? Uh, I think this might be a good flagship for, for the technology and something that, you know, it has a widespread adoption. What I mean by that is just a regular Joe goes to the, to the store and buying just bread or something with, with, uh, with coins and not, you know, just holding bitcoins or whatever. So what do you think about that? And what do you think about stable coins being, you know, a stepping stone to mainstream adoption? Absolutely. I think, you know, I think that with most mobile technologies that we've seen in, in developing parts of the world, um, what they actually end up doing is allowing those economies to sort of leapfrog uh, infrastructure. So, for example, in Africa, you've seen um, things like M-Pesa and, and, and SMS money. Africa has been doing the concept of, of digital money is so native to Africa, um, they have that it's second nature, right? Whereas to us, we, we didn't get SMS money. We still don't really use that. Um, it, Venmo and, and those kinds of things have come into the mainstream here. But the big reason for that is because we have all of this banking infrastructure that's in place, right? Africa didn't ever have that. And so, but when they got smartphones and when they got SMS, they were able to make up for the lack of infrastructure there um, by sort of leapfrogging um, to the next level of, of financial innovation. So in places where the population is really underbanked or, um, you know, the financial infrastructure is not there, um, for example, we've, we work with a partner called Atlas Money in, uh, and their operations are largely in, in Ghana. 
well, there are Barclays banks in Ghana, but the um, they're expensive to open a bank account. The local people tend not to trust, uh, you know, European banks for obvious reasons, and um, and so they're not really they're not really used. Instead, what they've done is created a local network um, of what you can think of as like Uber for for a banker, right? So if you have if you've made some money in the market today, you can go and put um, you can go and put your money in basically what you can think of as a savings account with your friend, someone from your local community that you know, and they keep a, a mutual ledger to keep track of how much everybody has. And when you're ready to go withdraw some out, you call your friend up to come and meet you, and he brings you your cash. Well, they're starting to replace. The, you know, they're, we're working on a process to replace this with um, with dye. So that's that's very exciting, and I do think that we're going to see the fastest adoption in those kinds of places. But um, that's sort of the most obvious use case. At the same time, I think we're going to see over the next you know twelve to twenty four months. It's that it's going to be something that's not just for developing nations. So we're also working on projects with um, global remittance companies and supply chain finance technology companies that have, there's a lot of, there are a lot of good things about having such good banking infrastructure and there are some bad things about it, which make, which means that it's very slow for small to medium businesses with a global supply chain to say, send money through their supply chain. It can take, you know, between three and five days sometimes to actually get money from place to place, which slows down supply chains. It brings up the cost of everything. Um, so ultimately, we're starting to see some interest in using something like DAI to um, be the money of those places. And so far, so good. As far as mainstream adoption in first world countries, you know, I'm not sure that you'll see, I don't, I'm not sure you'll be able to buy a a latte in too many places with dye just yet. Um, but as Ethereum starts to scale, I think that that's going to become more and more viable. Um, and as you see user interfaces uh, start to improve and, you know, private key management solutions being figured out in a way that actually makes sense for your average user, we'll start to see some mainstream adoption in sort of the first world as well. So for this particular uh, industry, we can see the actually the the new things coming from developing world rather than developed world yeah i mean definitely a lot of the technologies are being built in the developed world but um i think we're seeing increasingly that their best use cases for, at least for now are actually in the developing world um they're the easiest places to prove out right because there's nothing to compete with it there is no place um there is no way in Ghana for people to just borrow against their assets. And so if, if we can provide that in a way that is easy and you know inexpensive, then of course I think that will drive adoption. But I do think that you'll see adoption in the first world as well as more and more people start to realize you know, how easy this actually is and what how it can be improved. But that's my job to go out and tell them about it. <laughs> And but what do we think about stable coins? Are they here to stay, or they're just a stepping stone? Wow, mass adoption of uh, you know the native cryptocurrencies for the blockchains, for example, Ethereum, Bitcoin, being more widely adopted. Is there a future for the cryptocurrency uh, for stable tokens? Sorry, hmm. 
or yeah, how generally you see the future of that? Absolutely. Like we've been saying, there's really no way to conduct business on a platform where the only currency it fluctuates as wildly as Ethereum or Bitcoin. So um, if I think stable coins are here to stay if if crypto in general is here to stay, right? If it does turn out that there are some viable business models to be created on top of this technology, then you're going to need stablecoin in order to make it work. So, um, you know, personally, I'm I'm bullish. I think uh, I think we're going to see some really interesting businesses coming on blockchain and cryptoverse here soon. Um, so, I think yeah, I do think stablecoins are here to stay. And here's the one or more speculative questions. What do you think about the government-backed stable coins? For example, a digital euro or digital USD, but backed by the government. Do you think uh, that such use cases, you know, might be viable, might see this in the future? I, of course, not from big economists, I would say, but like from one of the smaller ones being, you know, leading the way. Yeah, I don't even actually think that it's... Uh... I don't even think it's that crazy, right? Uh, governments are always having problems with um, with cash. It's expensive to print. It is hard to assess how much of it is in circulation. Um, it's hard to track, so it leads to, you know, it's easy to launder essentially. So it's, you know, most there are lots of lots of hundred dollar bills in the world that are used to buy drugs and weapons and and human trafficking and all of those things. So it makes perfect sense to me why a government would want to issue a government, basically the dollar, but instead of it being, you know, a piece of paper you keep in the back of your pocket, it's something that's, that's on chain. We are already, we've all already pretty much moved to digital banking. Not everybody that's, that's, that's true, but um, I definitely see this as a future. In fact, during the Singapore FinTech festival, um, Christine Lagarde was talking about how, you know, she thinks that, Potentially, Europe should, um, you know, start looking at these options more more seriously. Now, I don't think that that's a bad thing. I, I think that you're always going to have, maybe not always, but for the foreseeable future, you're always going to have um, what we call fiat currencies, whether they're government backed or, um, you know, stable coins or whether they're, like you say, actual bills. Um, the government-backed stable coins will be interesting because essentially what you're doing is you're, you know, cash is cash is a privacy solution for a lot of people right now, right? Particularly in places like um, Germany where they really don't sort of trust the government um, and they don't appreciate surveillance on on their spending, etc. I think a government-backed token um, without the proper privacy measures implemented will actually allow the government to have more insight into how money is being spent. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but I also think that because of that, you'll have, you will always have currencies like DAI, which are global borderless um, currencies that are not controlled by anyone, um, you know, any one jurisdiction, which will be important for, you know, global commerce. All right, and my last question: uh, What's next for Maker and for Dai? Tell us something from the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, um, we've got a lot of exciting things coming up. So, as I mentioned, right now 
It's just single collateral dye. So all dye is backed by ether. Uh, coming up in the next few months, we're going to have multi-collateral dye coming on chain, which means that any type of tokenized asset that you can think of from, um, you know, Augur's token rep and some of the other, you know, big tokens that you're aware of on coin market cap to securities tokens, whether they're stocks, you, know, you name it, um, you know, tokenized commodities, tokenized real estate, um, tokenized derivatives even, those are all going to be able to become really interesting collateral types. Um, and in particular, I think Maker will be focused on areas where we can provide specialized finance. So things like invoice factoring for small to medium businesses. That's a very low risk business, but for some reason the interest rates are really high. If we can use this technology to um, essentially consolidate some of the, the risk in that industry and, and lower the interest rates, then that's better for small, medium businesses everywhere. And that's where you'll really see a big impact. Awesome. Um, can you elaborate more about the multi-collateralization? You said that being backed by one of the other currencies in the market, does that mean that Maker will operate on other blockchains apart from Ethereum? Hmm, that's a good question. So we've actually been in several talks with other blockchains about this. I'd say, you know, in general, Maker is fairly, uh, you could say, blockchain agnostic, right? As I mentioned, we, this first started to be built on BitShares and now it's uh, it's built on Ethereum. But ultimately, Maker will most likely tend to stay mainly on whichever blockchain has the most collateral assets um, because basically the amount the supply of DAI is constrained by the amount of collateral in any given chain and so what that means is that if ethereum is where many of these security tokens and other types of you know larger size collateral tokens are going to be created then that's where we're going to you know keep the keep the the core contracts but we're also developing bridges for some of the other blockchains so that they can um, can basically collaborate with our ecosystem. And we're, uh, again, fairly agnostic about this. We don't have any concrete plans with any particular chains, but we're excited about some of the interoperability solutions out there, Polkadot, Cosmos, um, and we'll be certainly thinking a lot about how to utilize those to make sure that we're not missing out on any collateral opportunities um, while still, you know, maintaining the security of the system all right thank you thank you Ashley for joining our show uh, this was really one one, one of truly by discussion that I've had so far so yeah thank you again for joining us absolutely and yeah hopefully talk to you soon again likewise thanks so much for having me on hey guys thank you for listening i hope you have enjoyed this episode of the blockchain meditation podcast please make sure to subscribe and comment and stay tuned for our upcoming episodes see you soon